Tonight we're going to see how the gospel spread from the parts of Judea and went up through a very strategic point, a place called Antioch. It says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Now, this is going to be a transition. What we're going to see tonight is a church that is planted in a place called Antioch that becomes the first non-Jewish church, the first Gentile assembly. And not just your run-of-the-mill church planting endeavor, but it grows to be one of the most effective outreaches at that time in the world. Eventually, a guy by the name of John Chrysostom, one of the great theologians and scholars of the church, will pastor this church in Antioch and will have anywhere between 50 to 100,000 people in his congregation. You know, we hear about what's going on in Korea with Cho. Hey, this was happening way before he was ever on the scene. Tremendous, we really can't call it revival because they were never dead. Revivals are only for dead people. Only the dead need to be revived. This is when it first came there. It exploded and it grew and it became a springboard of, of evangelism for, throughout all the world. What we read tonight and through most of the book of Acts is something you could call pioneer evangelism. That is, somebody goes out into raw territory to plant a church, to spread the gospel where people have never heard the gospel before. Now, that's tough, and not everyone's cut out to do it. It's tough to go into an area where no one has ever heard of Jesus. I didn't know what that was like until one time we went to India. And we were in southern India, and I tried to share about Jesus. They thought I was talking about a toothpaste. Because it sounded so much like a brand that they had over there. They'd never heard his name. And there is such a hunger as we're going to see tonight in Acts, and we see anywhere in the world where a person will go where the gospel hasn't been preached. There is an incredible hunger. As Get that beeper. As much as it's tough, it can also be very rewarding. A few years ago, and I was just talking to another missionary who's going to speak at the women's conference this weekend. We were up in Thailand, and we flew into um, Bangkok. And we took a truck drive for about eight hours up north, and I got to sit in the back of the truck through all these dusty roads. And we pull up to this one open field area, and the guy shouts through the window, this is where the mission conference is. It was a pastor's conference. I was uh, blessed to be able to come and share with pastors, native, indigenous pastors from Thailand. I said, great. And we pulled by this lean-to made out of twigs. There were several of them. It was open face. It was just a lean-to, completely open on one side. And the guy kind of smiles at me and says, that's going to be your house. I thought he was joking. I said, ha, ha, that's great. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, that wasn't a joke. You're really going to live there this week. And I thought, you're kidding. And I'm t it, was, it made Phoenix, Arizona in the summer seem cool. It was so hot because it was so muggy. And I thought, no one's going to come, no pastor in his right mind would come out here from all over the country to hear me speak, least of all. The place was packed. There were people so hungry, so open, and, and non, 
leaders, non-pastors, non-missionaries were there just to hear the Word of God. There was such a hunger for it. And this is something that the apostles and the early church experienced also as we read here and we will read uh, in the rest of the book of Acts. Antioch was an interesting city. It was the third most important and third largest city in the Roman Empire, only after Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. It had a population then of about 500 to 600,000 people. It was very cosmopolitan. It was on a main trade route. And so people from all over the world gathered there. And that's why it was perfect as a springboard for evangelism into several parts of the world. Sort of like Amsterdam we've heard about tonight. Now I've heard that there's 124 separate cultures in that one city. People from different countries who have settled there and there's pockets of culture. And so it becomes a strategic place to springboard in evangelism. And so it was with Antioch. Now, I want you to look in verse 2. When Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained to them an order from the beginning, and he tells his whole story to them. What happened? How he got a vision on a housetop, went in to Cornelius, shared the gospel with them. That's interesting that instead of these guys in Jerusalem getting all excited about the reception of the gospel by a Roman centurion, they're ticked because he was eating with someone who was non-Jewish. That's their whole bone of contention. You know, Peter probably walked in thinking, you know, the guys at Jerusalem, they're going to slap me on the back, say, praise the Lord, Peter, what we've heard. As soon as he comes home, they says. Peter, we've heard horrible things. You shouldn't be eating with Gentiles. Now, those are the very thoughts that he himself had probably a few days before this because he was having a trouble making transition from Judaism to the gospel going out to all the world. He couldn't get into that. And now these people are contending with him because he was eating with the Gentile. Now, what is the big deal for a Jew to eat with a Gentile. Where in the Old Testament does it say you being a Jew can't even eat with a Gentile? Nowhere. That was the trouble with Judaism at that time. Judaism in the New Testament had disintegrated from God's original intent. That's why Jesus had to come along and say, you have heard that it has been said, but I say unto you. Because it had been so twisted and misinterpreted by the scribes and the rabbis, and as history went on, and especially when the Jews went into captivity, there arose what was called the oral law. It was the teaching of the elders passed on from generation to generation, their interpretation of what the law said. Not only did they misinterpret it, they twisted it so that it had no effect. Remember one time Jesus and his disciples were approached by the Pharisees. They said, Jesus, we have a real problem with your disciples. They don't wash hands when they eat. Now, they weren't worried about cleanliness. They were worried about ceremony. If you wanted to wash your hands and you had to before you ate, you had to push them forward with the fingers reaching toward heaven and pour water on the tips of your fingers. The water would run down the fingers, down the palm, back of the hand, and drip off the wrist. It had to drip off the wrist. Then you turn your hands around, pour water on the wrist. It would run down the tip of the fingers and onto the ground. had to do it that way. And then you dry your hands. Well, if you were a strict, right-on Jew, you do it not only 
before every meal, but between every course. So you want to have a salad? Then you want to have your main dish? I was going to say a ham sandwich. That really wouldn't cut it too well, would it? Your matzo ball falafel sandwich. And then your ice cream. You'd have to have wash your hands in between all of them. They had so perverted God's intention with their tradition, and Jesus hammers them on that. You know, I don't think things have changed very much. What these guys did to Peter is human nature. Whenever there's trouble in a church, it's usually not over big things. It's usually over stupid things. Eddie thinks the church will split because one half thinks the piano should be on that side. The other think they should be on that side. Where should the choir sit? What color should the robes be? Oh, that's stupidity. It's disease. And those are the things that people will just grab a hold of and it splits a church. It's stupid little things like what Peter had to face. And yet it's human nature. And there are still Judaizers within the church, like these people in Jerusalem, who make a big deal out of nothing, and they do little rules and regulations. A Christian can't wear this, can't do this, can't, can't, can't. And there are certain things, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't do. But there's a lot more do's in Christianity than don'ts. You can't eat with a Gentile. Well, aren't you going to say, hey, it's really neat that the gospel got preached and a Gentile got saved? They could care less. They were so blinded by stupid, petty little things. And so Peter, you know, it's beautiful. How do you defend them? How do you defend yourself when somebody says that? You just tell them what God has done. You don't go on a big theological binge. You just say, well, let me tell you, I thought the same way, but a sheep got let down from heaven with all sorts of unkosher things, and God said, eat them. And I said, being a good Jewish boy, oy vey, not so, Lord. I've never had anything unkosher, common, or unclean. God said, what I have cleansed, don't call common or unclean. He said, it happened to me three times. I went over to Cornelius' house. He received a vision from God. Then the Holy Spirit fell on them just like it did with us. Who am I to withstand God? It was a good argument. In verse 16, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift He gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, and this is a good part, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Well, at least they saw the light. They didn't want to hold on to their tradition. They figured, hey, this is a work of God. We best not get in the way of it. And so they let it slide. Then it says, Those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Still the same kind of thinking. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. 
And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added, and I love this, not to the church, they were added to the Lord. If you were to ask the Antioch Christians, what church do you belong to? You would have gotten an interesting answer. They wouldn't know how to answer in modern terminology. They would say, I belong to God's church. I belong to the church. I belong to Jesus. And that was the most important thing. They were added to the Lord. And Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, the rest of this evening, the few moments that we have left, I want to focus on one person, and that's Barnabas. We're going to talk about the church in Antioch tonight and in the subsequent weeks, because it's a very important church, but I want to talk about a person who was a real key player in affecting people's lives. His name is Barnabas. When I get to heaven, I've already planned out in my mind, there's a whole list of people I want to meet up with, hang out with, sit on a rock and talk, you know, for 30, 40, 50,000 years about things that I wanted to talk to them. But I can't wait to see Jesus, obviously. That's our great hope, to see him face to face. And hopefully he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Can't wait to meet Peter. Can't wait to meet Paul. I want to get a good look at him. Because some of the things I've heard, probably very different than how we pictured him. Then there's those odd people that you probably have never thought about would enter heaven, like possibly Nebuchadnezzar. Who, according to his account, made a real turn in his life after God really humbled him. And he gave glory to the only true God. It would be real interesting to see him in heaven. But I really want to meet Barnabas. You know why? Because he's different than the giants. He's not as spotlighted as Paul, Peter, and the others. He's one of the backstage people. You don't really hear much about him, but he contributed so much. Because he's called, he was renamed, the son of encouragement. That's what his name means. Barnabas. His original name was Joseph. He was from Cyprus, but they nicknamed him Son of Encouragement because he was an encourager. And that's the same word that is used here in verse 23. That he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. He had a reputation for that. Now, if you have an old King James Bible, it says he exhorted them. And if you look it up in Acts chapter 4, he's called the Son of Exhortation. And that's a good word, but it's been misapplied by a a whole lot of believers. You'll often hear people say, I have the gift of exhortation. And they'll often say it like that. What they mean is they have the gift of condemnation. But it sounds better to say I have the gift of exhortation. There is no gift of condemnation, by the way. The only one that gives that is the devil. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You pass from death unto life. But some people 
using the guise of the gift of exhortation, think it's their calling by God to castigate every believer for every flaw in their life. And there's one part of the human anatomy they love the best. It's the index finger because they can point it at people and stick it on their chest and in their nose and say, get right. But that's not what the word means. Exhortation means, and the best translation is, to comfort and to encourage. It's the kind of a person who gets alongside and helps another person, boosts them up, becomes a pillar to help them stand. When their legs are weak, he'll hold them. He helps people reach their full spiritual potential. Instead of kicking them, pointing at them, yelling at them, pick them up, love them, and spurn them on. Give them courage, hence the word encourage. And that was Barnabas. These kind of people are desperately needed in the church. It was Henry Drummond who said, just think of how many prodigals are kept out of the kingdom of God by those unlovely characters who profess to be inside. Boy, that's a sad possibility, isn't it? Think how many people are kept from Jesus by those unlovely people who profess that they're his. Oh, but Barnabas was a different sort. Oftentimes, I have heard, I know you've heard, other Christians talk about other Christians and just rip them apart. They'll hear somebody's name and they'll be first to say, he's so-and-so and he's does this and that and da-da-da, and just try to really ruin his reputation personally. And yet Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. Instead of pushing down, he lifted people up. And we see this all the way through Scripture. Somebody once said something that's so true, kind of witty. He said, a pat on the back, though only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, is miles ahead in results. And you know, you want to get a person to do something, encourage. You can kick them and beat them all you want, but you're not going to motivate them well. Now, I've got to admit something. Guilt is an incredible motivator. And you can turn on Christian television and radio and you can hear a lot of people, you can get motivated really quickly with guilt. People tell you what a rat you are. How unspiritual, how sinful you are. And then they'll really turn the juice up and I just really need help today. Nobody's been calling and pledging their money today and it's all because of you. God's work would get done if you would get off your can and start sending me money. You know what? They're all right. That's true. That's the sad part about it. We laugh at it. But it's true. And at the same time, that's not the way to motivate God's people. It's to encourage them. It's to lift them up. It's to build them up. It's to feed them. And then they become strong. And when they become strong, oh, they get motivated to do lots of stuff. And all those gimmicks and all that guilt is garbage. Oh, the three G's, it kind of rhymes. Kind of like a preacher thing. Well, let's go on here. I wanted to quote something to you, though, before we move on, by William Barclay, a commentator. He said, one of the highest of human duties is the duty of encouragement. It's easy to laugh at men's ideals. It's easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. 
It's easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. But we have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. And blessed is the man who speaks such a word. Now, I had a person like that in my life. Not that I don't anymore, but in one strategic time in my life, I was a brand new baby believer. And there were the Smith brothers, and there still are. Chuck Smith and Paul Smith. And Chuck was like Paul the Apostle to me. Words of truth and feeding. And he encouraged me through the Scripture. But Paul, I knew a little bit better, and he would come alongside of me and be my Barnabas. When I was having problems with my father getting along, he would come alongside, call my dad, call me. When my brother died in a motorcycle accident, he was the one that came up to me and alleviated all the guilt that goes along with those kind of situations. And he has always been there as an encourager at strategic times. And I just thank God for people that God raises up to fulfill that kind of a ministry. We see here that he encouraged them in verse 23. They encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Now, I want you to put your finger here, or a Bible marker, and I want to look at a little quick biographical sketch of a man who encouraged other people, Barnabas. We're just going to sort of see vignettes of his life. He's behind the scenes in all of these, and yet his impact on the church was so dramatic. And then let's just kind of compare our own level of encouragement as we look at them. Turn to the first mention of him in Acts chapter 4. In verse 32, it says, Now the multitude of all who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all of them were possessors of lands or houses. They sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now here's the problem. The church was very young. They had no board of directors. They had no real pastors. They had no real organization. They were just fresh out of the womb spiritually. They'd just been born again. All they knew was Jesus. And they were getting persecuted for it. The leaders were already threatened back in Acts chapter 4, a few verses before this. They prayed for boldness. They went out again. And the church is under all sort of attack. Plus, most of them have lost their jobs. Financially, they're really hurting. Because most of the jobs in Jerusalem were temple-related, and the temple was run at that time by a group called the Sadducees. And because the Christians believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees persecuted them. People lost their jobs. Now, for young Christians, they're up against a lot. A lot of young believers who are being ridiculed for their faith and are financially struggling because they made a commitment to Christ would be tempted to cash it in. Right? 
I mean, they just became Christians and all of a sudden the world looks bleak. They're probably thinking, this is abundant life? No, this is a bummer. Did Jesus say, I have come that you might have bummer and have it more abundantly? That's what it sounds like is happening to me. But people were pooling their resources, and one is named in particular Barnabas. Obviously, he was a man of resource. He had land. He sold it. He didn't think about his own interests. He brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet so that it could be used in the church. Let's call this the encouragement of finances. The encouragement of finance. Ever think that your money could be an encouragement? It can be. When I was coming out to Albuquerque to start this church, I believed in my heart that God had called me to come here. I was encouraged when one evening a man walked up to me at a church in Southern California when I was still living there, and I was going to come out here a couple weeks later, handed me a check for $900 out of his own pocket. He said, let this be an encouragement to you just to do it with whatever the Lord would lead you to as you start the ministry out there. Oh, that helped do a lot of things. Buy supplies for the church. The ability for us to rent a place for a while. To get somebody out here to help lead worship. It was a tremendous encouragement. The encouragement of finances. And we see Barnabas exemplifying that here. I love this saying. Somebody said, money is like manure. Pile it up high and it stinks. Spread it out and it will help things grow. I think Barnabas believed that. He said, I've got resources. That land's just sitting around. I'm going to give it to help these people who are really in need and let the gospel go on. A word of warning. When you encourage people financially, you must remember you're a steward of the resources God has given you. Indiscriminate giving is never encouraged in the Scripture. Because you're a steward... Because you're a manager over the money God has entrusted to you, you and I ought to look for good, smart investments. Just because somebody does something in the name of Jesus, I never feel obligated to give a penny. I want to see fruit. And that was Paul's whole thinking in Philippians. When he said to the Philippians, there's not been any other church that has helped me in Macedonia except you, financially. Not that I want a gift but fruit that would abound to your account. So Paul was out winning souls to Christ because they supported him and enabled him. The people who supported him were getting a share in the spiritual fruit. God would tally it to their account. Now imagine coming up to heaven and having people walk up to you that you've never met, wanting to shake your hand and say, Thank you! Thank you for what? I don't even know you. Oh, well... You gave money to this person and this organization. I was led to Christ through them. Thank you for doing that. See, it will go to your account. So I would look as a spiritual investment, are they bearing fruit? Not just are they begging for your money over the airwaves. Do you, and if you do see fruit, then I consider that. And I would certainly move as the Lord leads. Now turn over to Acts chapter 9. We've seen the encouragement of finances. In verse 20, this is Paul the Apostle. At this time, he's Saul of Tarsus, freshly born again. 
Immediately he, that is Paul, preached Christ in the synagogues that he's the Son of God. And all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for this purpose, that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who dwelt at Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And the disciples took him by night, led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now you can understand their fear. Saul was the biggest persecutor of the church. And imagine Jerusalem one Sunday morning, he comes walking down the aisle in the middle of the message. And you know that he's a persecutor. He kills Christians. Well, if you're a pastor, you're going to say, uh, let's bow our heads. Amen. We're letting church out a little bit early today. God bless you. When I was in India, I met a guy named Joy Kudichako. He used to be a head of the communist leader, the communist leaders in southern India and head of the communist party for that whole region of southern India. And he was, before he became a Christian, he was involved in setting up assassination plots to kill the major Christian leaders that were making the biggest influence in southern India. He had it all planned out, and God got a hold of his life. Well, for him to convince Christians that he was on their side, they didn't buy for a long time. Well, that's what it was like for Saul of Tarsus. Nobody would believe him. Nobody would... It says they did not even believe that he was a disciple. But verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, how he had spoken to him, how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in, going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. Poor guy. When the brethren found out, they brought him to Caesarea, and then they shipped him out or sent him over to Tarsus. We need people like Barnabas who will come alongside those brand new green believers, put their arms around them, and teach them how to walk. Like Barnabas did. I'm sure it was pretty scary to see Paul as a brand new Christian. He didn't start out as Mr. Mature. I'm sure that he was really rough around the edges. He was Mr. Bold, Mr. Zealous, and he probably said stupid things at the wrong time. And a lot of people were afraid of him, but Barnabas was willing to risk himself, even his reputation, and befriend this person. Encourage him. He stuck his neck out. Oh, there's a real need for personal discipleship. Personally getting involved in people's life. If you're an older Christian, you don't have to form discipleship courses and make it formal. Find someone who's a weak young believer. Attach yourself to him. It's that easy. Become a Barnabas for them. Vouch for them. Teach them how to walk. And become an encouragement like he did for Saul of Tarsus here. That's really what true ministry is. It's people-oriented, not position-oriented. Oh, I want a position in the church. Well, you don't know what true ministry is. You become a servant of men for Christ's sake. Let's call this the encouragement of friendship. He vouched for him. You see, folks... Christianity is more than just obstetrics. 
Oh, we get excited, we clap when people come forward and accept the Lord. And you know what? You ought to. It is exciting. They're being birthed into new life. But that's just the beginning. That's obstetrics. Then there's pediatrics. They need new believers classes. Lots of love. Lots of encouragement. Sometimes they need surgery. Get stuff cut out of their lives that God wants to radically remove or put in. There's even geriatrics. They get old. They need special care spiritually. And so do believers. Now I want you to turn to Acts chapter 11, which we just came from. We see that he's at it again. Look back in verse 21 with me. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people, or a great number, believed and turned to the Lord. And the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. The leaders in Jerusalem, no doubt, felt responsible. There's a new work of God. We want to get behind it, examine it. You need to have strong leadership. Who better than Barnabas? Why? Because Barnabas is from Cyprus. He's not really from a Jewish area. He's not from Jerusalem. He knows people like this. He could probably fit in very well. And so they sent him. He became the first pastor of the church, Pastor Barney. He stayed there for a year, it says, in verse 26, with Paul the Apostle. Look at his profile in verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Let me read that portion of a verse in the Amplified Bible. It says he was a good man. It means he was good for the good and advantage of other people. He really was good for their advantage. He wasn't just a nice person. He was good for them. Now, how did he encourage these believers? First of all, it says he was glad when he saw the grace of God. Unlike the Jewish Judaizers in Jerusalem who were angry that God would dare bless anybody else but them. You know, they heard about it and they said, Peter, you've been eating with a Gentile. Barnabas sees what's going on and he is rejoicing. He's not a stick in the mud. He rejoices with them. And he encourages them in that with his own joy. Let's call this the encouragement of fellowship. He brought them in. He became a part of them. Now look at the... Uh, the next verse, verse 25. Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled the church, or with the church, and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The church is growing. Barnabas knew, we need more gifted leaders besides me as this church is growing. Who could I get? Light goes off. Saul of Tarsus. He's been in Tarsus ten years. Yes, Paul was ten years old in the Lord before he had any significant ministry. Although I'm sure he was being used by God back in Tarsus, sharing the gospel. He was always just gung-ho for evangelism. But he thought, let's get Saul of Tarsus and bring him over here. He'd been in seclusion, and so he searched for him. Literally, he hunted him out. And I want you to notice this. What Barnabas did for Saul was to push him into a position of leadership because obviously Barnabas knew that Saul had potential and that God was calling him. 
after seeing his life, he brings him to Antioch, shares the ministry for ten years with him, or not for ten years, for one year with him. Not only does he do that, but you notice something throughout the book of Acts. It says, and Barnabas and Saul did this. And Barnabas and Saul did that. And then all of a sudden there's a change. It says, and Paul and Barnabas went there and did that. And you see Barnabas, a more mature, a more seasoned believer in the Lord, pushing himself out of the way and pushing Paul out into strategic frontline ministry. Let's call this the encouragement of fruitfulness. He sees potential in a guy and says, let's encourage this guy to get on with the Lord. You know, Leonard Bernstein, who recently passed away, the great conductor, somebody asked him a news at a news conference, Leonard or Dr. Bernstein, what's the toughest instrument for you to find in an orchestra? Without hesitation, he said, second fiddle. Nobody wants to be second. We all want to be first. Barnabas was willing to take second place. It's like the story I love to tell about the person who bought a ticket for a coach in the days of the coaches, horse-drawn carriages. The first-class ticket, second-class, and third-class were all the same price. He thought, I'll save money by a third-class ticket till they got on the coach. And they started going up a hill. And the person in the front seat said, first-class passengers, stay seated. Second-class passengers, get out and walk. Third-class passengers get out and push. Then the guy realized how he got a good deal on the third-class ticket. We need people who will push, not just stay seated, who will get behind and encourage others into fruitfulness. And so he gets Paul, and he does it. Now look at one more section before we close, and that's Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, look at verse 36. Great. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go now back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. See, he's taking the initiative now. Paul is clearly in charge. We're going back to visit our brothers on a second missionary journey. Let's go for it. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had gone with them and had not gone with them to the work. John Mark went with him on the first journey. When times really got tough, he was a baby. He babied out and he went back home to mama. Well, that was enough to make Paul say he had one chance, he doesn't get any more chances. He is history in my book. Look at verse 39. Barnabas refused to be intimidated. The contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. It's sad, but look what happens. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now you can imagine the conversation that they had. Hey, let's go on another trip here and, and see the brothers that came to know the Lord. Encourage them, strengthen them. Barnabas said, great idea. I'd like to take John Mark again. John Mark? 
You can't depend on him. He flaked out last time. He is so undependable. Oh, but Paul, I know that he's he's got a calling from God. If we just get behind him and encourage him and push him a little bit, just like I did to you. Come on. No way. And they had this big argument, and it was so contentious that they had to part company. But I'm glad they did. You know why? Otherwise, the Gospel of Mark probably wouldn't have been written. Because John Mark wrote it. By the encouragement of Barnabas. Let's call this encouragement in spite of failure. One strike, two strikes, three strikes. You're still not out in God's game. And Barnabas was the one who saw the people. Paul and Barnabas were very different. Paul, God bless his heart, saw the work. Barnabas saw the people that could do the work. And he wanted to be one of the healing agents in those people's lives. Not only that, and this is the beautiful part, at the very end of Paul's life, when he's in prison, he's dying in Rome. He says in his last letter, he says, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark. Bring Mark. Because he's useful to my ministry. You see, through the encouragement of Barnabas, Mark became strong, penned the Gospel of Mark as he listened to the Apostle Peter. And through the encouragement of Barnabas, he became even useful to Paul, who wrote him off at one time. Encouragement in finances, encouragement of friendship, encouragement of fruitfulness, encouragement in spite of failure. He was always there. And he gave one message, and we'll close with this, where we left off in Acts chapter 11. Look at his message. And let this be an encouragement to us before we close. Verse 23, When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. In other words, stick close to Jesus. With purpose of heart. You know, there's something interesting about young Christians. God does some, does a wonderful thing for them. He puts them, I think, in a bubble for a while. You know what I mean by that? You accept the Lord and all you can think about, I mean, you are on cloud nine. All you dream about, all you think about is Jesus, the Bible, prayer. Life is just, it's great. Nothing can go wrong. And it seems like there's this weaning period. It's sort of like a womb. And it's protective and it's warm and it's beautiful. And then God comes along and strategically pops your bubble. So that you grow up. And you start asking questions. Am I saved? I'm having a trial. I can't believe it. I'm actually distressed a little bit. I've had abundant life for a month now. And I'm going through a dry period. God must have left. And all of those gymnastics that everyone goes through as a believer. So that you grow and you need the, you need a deeper commitment in your heart rather than just the feelings. Hey, Christianity, serving God isn't a feeling. Like worship isn't a feeling. Oh, I feel good. I feel like worshiping. Well, even if you don't, do it anyway. You need to continue with purpose of heart serving the Lord. There's times when you don't want to do it. And you need the encouragement to make a deeper commitment than just feeling. A couples come to me all the time. I've lost feeling for 
her. Really? Yeah. I don't love her anymore. Really? Don't you know love's a choice? Well, I know, but when I married her, I had feelings. Yeah, but when you married her, you made a choice. Nobody forced you at the altar with a gun at your head saying, you're going to say I do. You planned it. You sent out invitations. You decided to do it. You made a choice. Now continue and follow through with the choice that you made, whether you feel like it or not. I'm not saying feelings aren't important. That's ridiculous. There are ways to rekindle feelings in a relationship with a wife or husband or with the Lord. But with purpose of heart, continue. Jesus said, if you abide in me, which means maintain a close, intimate, living communion with me, and I and you, you're going to bear fruit. But it takes to stay connected. Just like a branch to a vine. You notice that even though it's snowed, the branches haven't fallen off the trees. They know better. Even though it's cold, they dare not sever themselves, as if they had a will, from the tree. That's the analogy Jesus gave. You cannot bear fruit consistently. If you sever yourself from intimacy with Christ, it won't work. You can go through all the motions, go to church all you want to, but if you don't stay close to Jesus, with purpose of heart, continue in Him. Jesus said, if you do that, you can't bear fruit. Barnabas knew that. He knew they needed a deep commitment in their heart to continue following the Lord, so he gave them this exhortation, even though it gets tough. And they were being persecuted, by the way. When I lived in California, I went backpacking one time. I went with a guy who was a very seasoned backpacker. And we started out in the flatlands. It was over Christmas vacation. And we start hiking up. And pretty, you know, for the first hour, I felt, this is a breeze. Anybody can backpack. I am Joe Backpacker. I had a stove. I had a tent. I had, I had everything. I thought, you know, get a picture of me. It was kind of neat here. I can send it to people. After a while... My shoulders were screaming for me to stop. My legs were throbbing. And I would keep turning to him, are we almost there yet? And he would be very encouraging. We weren't even close to being there. Oh, yeah, not, you know, in his mind, you know, four or five more hours. But, yeah, we're almost there. But he, he, he said, said one thing, keep going, keep going. You can, you're doing great. You know, after a while, the pain wasn't as bad. It was still there, but not as bad. I got a second wind, and I made it. I kept going. This man was an encourager every step of the way. And it says they were called Christians first at Antioch. And we'll explain a little more about what that means next time we get together. They were first called Christians at Antioch. And how were they Christians? Well, they turned to the Lord and they continued to walk with Jesus. You know what I love about the book of Acts? It's so simple. You compare the church at that time to much of Christian work today, and it's just, it's black, it's like day and night. There's often this huge, complicated, bureaucratic system in place in so many churches and organizations. And you want to get something done, and, well, you know, this, got to approach this committee, and this committee has to talk to that committee, and the decoration committee has to talk to the, uh, pulpit committee and you know they just did it hey go to Antioch great let's go do it well how how do we do it? well the Lord just said go let's go let's get the support of the brothers let's get the call of God let's do it 
And I think God is calling us back to that as our model. Layman's liberation. You don't need anything but a call of God, the willingness to do it, and continuing in step with Him. God will use you powerfully. Let's pray for that. Father, we would ask that the things that we read would be things that we experience, Lord. Not that all of us are going to go to a place like Antioch. Not that all of us are are called in the same capacity that Paul the Apostle is or even Barnabas, but certainly we can be a part. Show us our part, our calling. That unique place You've chosen in advance for us. And Lord, I pray that more and more that encouragement would mark our lives. The encouragement of finances. If that's what we have and that's what we can utilize to bless another. Or the encouragement of friendship, discipling a young person who needs to learn how to stand. Or the encouragement of fruitfulness. Encouraging a person in their work, in their ministry. Giving them opportunities. And Lord, even though people fail, may we just pick them up and encourage them to go on with you. Lord, I want to thank you tonight for just a special evening together with your family. The work that you're doing in this country, in an Amsterdam, with Bob's ministry survival all over the world, I pray that you'd bless each one, Lord, as they go out in your name, that you'd provide for them, that you would personally encourage them, that they would experience the hand of God being with them, your favor, your blessing. And I pray, Lord, that more people would be touched through our lives as we shine the light that you put within us. In Jesus' name.